Adam Johnson is the co-host of the Citations Needed podcast and the writer of The Column on Substack. This is Adam Johnson. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. I'm here with Adam Johnson. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Um, uh, yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. You, you know, you're an interesting guy because you have a, um, a, a job that you're, I don't know, what would you say is your job description? You're, you do a lot of things, but a lot of it is media criticism. Um, how would you define it? Do you define it? Yeah, I think media criticism, analysis. Um, one thing I don't call myself ever is a journalist because journalism okay. is, involves the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the mining for and, and, and uh, finding of new information, which is not necessarily what I do. I see. Um, I, I do more analysis. I'm a pundit. I'm a pundit. Okay. <laughs> I'm a, I'm, I, I know it's a little bit of a pejorative, but I, but uh, to be accurate, I think pundit is probably the right word. I, I, I podcast. Now I write again. I, I right. went about a year without really writing. But now yeah, I write again. Substack. So now I can call myself. So now I can call myself a writer, although Substack is, is writer is, a, is now also a pejorative along with pundits right. uh, and podcaster. So I have a, I have a triple pejorative title and both a podcaster, a Substack writer and a pundit. Yes, I, I was. Um, I, I too, I have a podcast and a Substack, and I was thinking about moving to New York at some point. I'm like, can I really be that guy who lives? Hey, in man, New York? you know, too too many. It's, it's it's a scene, you know. It's uh, I'm. I will say, I'm one of the things I'm most glad about, aside from leaving my friends, which which I which I did <laughs> not like, but I I'm glad I left New York. I left New York about four years ago. Yeah, and uh, I moved to Chicago, and it's much. Uh, much less of a scene here, which is good. Yes, I'm. I'm originally from uh, a suburb of Chicago, but oh, uh, I'm, which I'm, suburb? Um, w- w- one of the the western suburbs. One of the the um, uh, I, I bounced around a little bit from like, okay, all right. You know, Downers Grove to uh, from the mean streets of Naperville. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I've That's heard right. some some comedians on podcasts say that they're from Naperville and they describe it as this horrible place. And I'm like, that is not that bad. Um, but you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, what I really wanted to talk to you about is um, some of like the media criticism work that you've done, um, some of the stories that you've highlighted, and maybe we can just like go through some of these major stories and. Um, we can hear your take as a, a pundit, an analyst, and um, let's take, for instance, the worker shortage um, that you wrote about recently on your Substack, the column, which I'll get that name in there. Um, when it comes to things like worker shortage, uh, first off, these stories have been all over the news that um, there's not enough uh, workers, that businesses are struggling to uh, find people to hire. Um, Immediately, what is your reaction to that? Um, well, um, the the labor shortage stories that we've heard in, in this late torrent are are a great example of how you sort of frame the conversation around um, things that are not really the issue at hand, while distracting from the primary function. So, what you know, what happens is when you create unemployment, uh, federal federal and state unemployment insurance. Um, that's six to nine hundred dollars a week. You necessarily put upward pressure on wages, right? So pe- people have to pay more to get you to work, because otherwise, why would I give a shit? Right. Um, 
And of course, to be clear, millions of people didn't, didn't even get the, uh, the unemployment insurance, right? People in the informal economy, uh, 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 immigrant labor, sex workers, there, there are millions of people who didn't even get the UI. But the UI itself was a huge transfer of wealth from to the poor for the first time in 50 years, probably the greatest social welfare program we've had, certainly in my lifetime, but in the last uh, 50, 60 years or so. Um, it, it last year for the first time in a very long time, po both poverty, hunger, extreme hunger, childhood hunger, all declined. Um, there are some exceptions to that, uh, overall, overall poverty in African-American communities slightly increased, but, 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 but broadly speaking, the unemployment insurance was, um, massively important to reducing human suffering. You know, we oftentimes hear about dictators sort of letting their people starve or starving their own people. This was the, 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 the immeasurable or rather the measurable and, and, and empirical data we have on the unemployment insurance program, a federal, a federal assistance unemployment insurance program, as well as, of course, the stimulus checks and um, to, to, to a more uh, um, secondary degree, the, 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 the federal eviction moratorium, we know that that reduces poverty and hunger. These are sort of empirical goods. It's still, again, it's still marginal. It's not a huge, a huge improvement, but it's an improvement. Um, and this was unacceptable because so much of our labor force, especially that in retail restaurants, the kind of lower rung jobs, the gig economy, which now almost one in three workers are a part of some form of a gig economy or engaged in quote unquote gig economy, which is basically just a, um, a, third, a third worker uh, uh, um, categorization that dates back to Jim Crow that basically creates a, a, a class of laborers who are, who are not subject to labor law basically, right? Um, that this was that capital um, and, the, and the organs of capital, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Restaurant Association, the National Retail Association, all these very powerful interests, lobbyists, uh, corporate, uh, corporate interests, um, investment banks, uh, venture capital, hedge funds, you name it. Everybody wanted to get rid of the supplemental federal um, uh, unemployment insurance. Yeah. Because the so much of the economy, depending on how you define it, anywhere between a third in a, in a, in a, a quarter and a third of the economy is based on precarious labor, which is labor that people only do because they fear destitution, homelessness, or, uh, or financial insolvency uh, or, or, or bad credit or getting kicked out of their apartment. So when you take that away, when you create a floor that is above the poverty line, which, which the UI did for millions of people, you effectively undermine the whole premise of our of our doggy dog economy because now you have people who can effectively um decide what they want to do for work and that's not okay that is not acceptable for, for the ruling class you can't you can't have that you can't have people be comfortable and you don't want to create a precedent to where this is now considered a, a sort of permanent entitlement which is why everything was always phrased as temporary pandemic assistance so what happened was they realized as the delta variant spread that the pandemic wasn't going to be temporary, that this is probably going to be something we basically just live with, that we have vaccines, but they don't really do much to stop transmission and new mutations. So the pandemic is basically going to be with us indefinitely. Um, and so it's time to kind of, so both parties, the Democrats let, um, um, far more quietly sort of adopted the, the what was Republican policy a year ago, which is we're just going to throw the pores to the meat grinder and we're going to kind of act like this pandemic isn't real and we're not really going to close anything. We're going to have mass mandates because, you do, know, whatever. Do you think that's what Nancy Pelosi says exactly behind closed doors? It's time to throw the pores I mean, they the put, grinder. I think that, I mean, they put it in, they put it in more euphemistic terms, obviously, but look, they don't, you don't want an employee, you don't want an, a, 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 an employee base 
that isn't desperate because then they're not going to go work in your restaurants and clean your toilets and bartend your your bars. They're not going to want to do that work. It's, it's dangerous. It's difficult. It doesn't pay very well. And this, again, this was creating pressure. Corp, uh, you know, re retailers were having to pay $15, $18, $20. Um, Uber, uh, Lyft, these kind of gig economy uh, employers were, 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 were getting hit hard uh, from their perspective. Of course, they were, were still, you know, doing just fine. Um, and so they had to create this idea that there was a labor shortage. Now, of course, there wasn't a labor shortage. There was a, a there was where it was basically an informal capital strike where I don't know if everyone knows what a capital strike is, but it's basically where capital goes on strike. It's sort of the, it's, it's kind of the Ayn Rand, um, Atlas Shrugged, right? Sort of uh, where capital informally gets together and says, we're going to not raise wages to meet the demands. We're going to basically lobby aggressively to get rid of UI because in the long term, it's in their best interest to eat shit, close early, and maybe um, not have you know not have hours that they want. In an effort to pressure lawmakers to NUI, which which happened very quickly. I mean, Republican governors ended it um, last May. Uh, federal obviously did it in September. They knew this was sunsetting, and big corporations were able to sort of survive that capital strike. Um, and the 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 sort of uh, myth of the labor shortage has been debunked about a thousand times. And we know this for no other reason. There, there's two reasons why that is. Number one, uh, we know that there's no correlation between states that got rid of unemployment insurance and job growth. There had nothing to do with that. Uh, number two, we know that wages relative to corporate profits have, have, have stayed stagnant while corporate profits have increased over the last 20 years. So what you saw really more than anything during, during the uh, UI, um, both federal and state UI, uh, months of the last year and a half, what you saw was really a, a, a sort of correction in the market that, that wages had been suppressed and been artificially low for decades, um, largely because of this, because of lack of unions, because of precarity, because of the creation of these, of these third class of workers in the gig economy. And that what you saw was basically a semi-correction that wages relative to what they were 40 years ago, 50 years ago, are actually still kind of low. They're not, you know, relatively speaking, if you adjust it for inflation, um, but I really think, uh, <clears throat> um, but I really think uh, there's a, a Forbes senior education correspondent um, put it better because they, they very, there's been various articles about labor shortages in construction with teachers, uh, retail, uh, truck drivers is an article that uh, truck driver shortage is an article. These are pushed by industry lobbying groups. They're pushed by. Uh, the National Trucking Association, they're pushed by the National Retail, National Restaurant Association. They're pushed to the media because they achieve two things. Number one, they suppress wages because the greater the, the 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 greater your pool of prospective employees are, the lower your wages can be, right? Because if you have 100 applicants per one applicant, you can charge you you can offer salary way less than if you have two applicants per opening, right? So this is also why they want to. Um, <clears throat> this is also why historically. Uh, capital has supported lowering uh, safety standards, uh, letting teenagers do the jobs. Um, we now have a political article the other day saying getting rid of maternity leave would help um, help help the quote unquote labor shortage. Um, but as uh, a Forbes senior editor correspondent Peter Green wrote in 2019, in the midst of a, a labor shortage panic with respect to teaching, again it's the same script, right? He said, "Quote: You can't solve a problem starting with the wrong diagnosis. If I can't buy a Porsche for a dollar ninety-eight, that doesn't mean there's an automobile shortage." If I can't get a fine dining meal for a buck, that doesn't mean there's a food shortage. And if appropriately skilled humans don't want to work for me under the conditions I've set, that doesn't mean there's a labor shortage. Um, there, there, there was not a labor shortage. 
there is a lack, there is a pay shortage, which is something that progressive and union think tanks have been, and pundits have been trying to stress upon people for years now. Because again, this is the labor shortage trope isn't new. Uh, anytime capital doesn't want to pay wages, they melt down and talk about how they can't find workers. But with, of course, there's a, there's an addendum to that, uh, which is they can't find workers at the wage they've set. But of course, if they offered a million dollars, they would have no problem, right? And so somewhere between 775 an hour and a million dollars, there's some number <laughs> that people will work for. Right. So now we're just negotiating what that is. It doesn't mean there aren't enough humans to do the job. And for, for by and large, because the U.S. Chambers of Commerce, both domestically and nationally, you know this because it's their sources, they, they fed these stories to the media in, in April and May and June of 2001, back when everyone thought, remember, there was that brief period for two months when we thought this thing was over, right? Before yeah. Delta, that this was going that they needed to push the labor shortages to justify and to provide political cover to Republican governors and feckless Democrats who wanted to sunset and get rid of the supplemental un unemployment insurance to bring down wages for the for the for the poor for the working class because ultimately that creates more profits for the rich um, and that's ultimately of course who they work for um, and you had story after story after story CNN NPR labor shortage labor shortage labor shortage labor shortage and then some would have some token comment about wages but then it would sort of be head waved away they'd say you know John Smith who owns this uh you know bed and bed and breakfast in Nantucket says he tried he tried offering twenty dollars versus eighteen but it just didn't work. Well we have no evidence of that we have no way if that's we have no way of knowing if that's true. We don't know what the actual number is we don't know what they normally pay seasonal employees there's tons of examples of this. Um, there's Skylar, Skylar Reeves, you know, these great kind of douchebag entrepreneur names, uh, in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, he has a restaurant group in Phoenix. He went on CNN saying, um, I'm offering free college tuition. So this growing of these great kind of bootstrappy patronizing gimmicks, right? You don't want to give people money. You need to give them an opportunity, right? It's all, it's all sort of very like 2004 Republican national convention kind of head padding. Um, he, he, and then you read the fine print and you realize, oh, well, to me, to meet the criteria to, for this restaurant group to allegedly pay this tuition, they have to work uh, there for three months, then sustain a schedule of over 30 hours a week and then have 32 hours of school. So they have to go to school and work for plus 60 hours and not have a GPA dip below, dip below um, a C average. Um, and if any of that occurs, if they get fired, if they their schedule dips below 30 hours a week for just one week, or they get uh, below a C average or, or rather a C average or below, um, then, then they, then they have to pay their own tuition at this local community. I mean, they're all—it's gimmicks, right? This sort of PR stunts to get on TV to demagogue against unemployment insurance, and this is all. This was every single day. You couldn't, you can't. You, to this day, you can't, you can't um, spit without hitting a labor shortage story, and they're and they're all fundamentally framed the wrong way, uh, which is that with rare exceptions, there are some sort of historical exceptions, right? Like. During World War One, when all, when a lot of men went off to fight, there was a legitimate labor shortage. Um, uh, there are certain instances where um, there are fluctuations of geographic needs for education. Like a lot of people move into a city, but not enough teachers. Where there's a legitimate shortage of teachers, so there's literally not enough people to do the job, regardless of how much you offer. But for the most part, labor shortage stories are all bullshit. They're 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 sort of ready-made chamber of commerce. You know, hand them the press release. And then they have all these sympathetic stories about people who own restaurants in, in uh, you know, Appleton, Wisconsin, who can't find waiters. You I mean we had a thousand of these? Now, where did CNN, CBS, NPR find these people? They didn't just sort of go door to door knocking as a, you know, they didn't send a journalist to go door to door knocking, asking people, uh, you know, are you having a hard time finding employees? 
the, the local lobbying groups, industry groups and chambers of commerce are, are, are taking the most sympathetic cases that they, that they kind of, because I mean, a lot of these restaurants are part of these organizations, right? They sort of send out an email saying, who's having a, a you know, hard time finding workers. And then they find those sympathetic case. They typically focus on minority uh, and women owned businesses. And then they take them and they pitch them to CNN or NPR or whomever and say, hey, I have a story about people who can't find workers. And then from then they shape and mold that narrative. But of course they have every incentive to say they, the issue isn't wages because they don't want to pay wages. Because again, they, they, it sets a precedent. Once you start paying wages at X, you have to keep doing that for the next few years or decades. And they don't want that. So yeah. that's the labor shortage story. Okay. Um, how, how, how do these like these stories, when you talked about uh, the Chamber of Commerce, like gathering, uh, I, 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 they have a relationship with these restaurants, but how do they come to the media and say, hey, do a story on this? They, I mean, it's a PR pitch. They just do a PR pitch. I mean, they send them an email saying like, hey, if you guys want to do a story of a labor shortage, we're here. I mean, that, that's what most business press is. That's what most tech press is. It's just taking pitches. And there's probably a little bit of vetting. I mean, I don't, they're not, you know, they're not total press releases. Right. But they're mostly press releases, right? Because, and again, from their perspective, they don't have any reason to be cynical. They're just thinking, oh, this is some Oshuk's business and they can't find people. Like there's no sense that there's a broader, there, there could be possibly an ulterior motivation here. Uh, which is the Chamber of Commerce from the beginning, from the very beginning lobbied against well, supplemental unemployment insurance. Because again, so many businesses rely on not just cheap labor, but cheap precarious labor, labor of people who are frightened, who are scared, who don't, because the more frightened and scared an employee is, the less likely they are to unionize, the less likely they are to quit, the less likely they are uh, to file sexual harassment claims you want them to be powerless and you want them to be li highly liquid and you want them to be precarious and the unemployment insurance undermine that fundamental social contract that allows them uh allows american corporations to be as profitable as they are because so many of them rely on non-unionized frightened cheap labor yeah that's um I, i'm i'm thinking also of just the fact that these media outlets I mean, you, you you do work in media as well, so you kind of have an inside view of it. It how much of this do you think they're uh, getting duped, you know, so to speak, or how much of this do you think they're just trying to fill time? Like, if you have an an hour long news sh show for your local uh, town, you, you might just be struggling to fill five minutes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a lot of it. I mean, look, a lot of people aren't really like they're 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 beat reporters. They have to pump out an article like basically four or five articles a week, right? And when someone hands you a story, you just do it. Um, you're not you're not really, you don't really have a time or, or inclination to sit there and think critically about how this fits into some broader public relations agenda. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. There was one of the early like CVS scare stories. I, I won't get into it completely, but there was a whole like, CVS had to shut down stores because of shoplifting. And there was an article, I won't say who the journalist was, because I, you know, I think she's just like a city beat reporter trying to make a living, right? Yeah, she did. She she did this whole story that was basically just a repackaged press release from CVS and the, and the San Francisco uh, Police Department about how CVS closed these stores due to shoplifting. And then I sort of sent her an email and I said, "Well, you know, there's a couple holes in the story. Number one, CVS planned on shutting 200 stores anyway. They announced it in August of 2019. Um, they shut down more stores in New York and San Francisco. Yet no one mentioned anything about shoplifting there. Uh, and B, I'm sorry, Walgreens, not CVS, rather. Sorry, this is all Walgreens." Uh, and B, CVS has not shut down any stores, whereas Walgreens has shut down 17 stores. Wouldn't that indicate 
if they're both suffering from the same shoplifting pandemic, wouldn't that indicate um, that the issue is more that, that this, this is that while shoplifting may be an issue, it's probably more part of a broader corporate strategy of consolidation among Walgreens and that Walgreens has political incentive to say this because of shoplifting, because they're trying to repeal Prop 47 and increase the punishment for for um, for uh, uh, petty theft from, from, you know, a felony charge from, from 450 to $950. And I sent her this email and she said, well, yeah, I got I don't know. I guess I didn't really think about that. I just kind of had a story to file. So I did it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of it. You know, it's, it's, it's people who are, you, you really can't do day-to-day reporting without having good relationships with these, with these industry forces and large who all of whom have public relations from the police, to chambers of commerce, to corporations. Cause again, the, the homeless people, the, the, the minorities, the, the sort of people who are going to end up on the shit end of, over-criminalization in San Francisco, whoever they may be, they don't have a lobbying firm. They don't have public relations firms. Um, the, the poor who are gonna be fucked over by sunsetting unemployment insurance for the most part, they don't have a lobbying firm. They don't have public relations firms. They don't have people who sit in some uh, desk whiteboarding strategy in Washington DC for, their, for the interest of the groups they, that pay them you know, 200, $400,000 a year. They don't have that. People who get shot by cops, they don't have, you know, public relations firms. And those public relations firms and and trade groups and industry groups and other kind of satellite think tanky organizations funded by these same corporations are the lifeblood of kind of beat reporting. Um, you can't really, because where else are you going to get your story ideas and information every day? Right. And so there's not a lot of critical thought that goes into it. You know, I think there are some, you'll see some pushback, like San, like San Francisco Chronicle um, had, you know, they, they let me write an op-ed criticizing their own reporting. Uh, you know, they had they, they, a few weeks later after they got pushback on some of that stuff, they did a critical analysis of shoplifting. So it's not as if they have some, uh, with some exceptions, it's not as if they have like a deep-seated ideological commitment to being right-wing assholes. It's just, it's the way the business is set up. Because of the because of the asymmetry of power, it's the old Howard's in. You can't be neutral on a moving train. Like where there's where there's asymmetries of power, um, inertia will necessarily serve power because that's who has all the resources. Um, and the nature of journalism, the the pressure to publish, the pressure to push out things, you're necessarily going to heavily lean on these sources that are well financed. Where those who are powerless, by definition, don't have those resources, with you know some exceptions. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, sort of like the police unions um, also serving a similar role as like the Chamber of Commerce, where they come to the news, uh, especially local news with some story. Like uh, if someone uh, if there's a crime, the, the police usually are the ones facilitating to the news what happened or what is alleged to have happened. Um, and especially if, um, you know, a cop shoots somebody. Uh, a lot of the times, uh, especially at local outlets, uh, they'll go to the, um, you know, they'll give their pitch about what happened. And, and can, can you talk about how that process works? Oh, well, so, I mean, the police unions are, are, are not, well, sometimes the police unions can be a vector for, for media manipulation, but for the most part, it's the actual police, police themselves who, you know, the, the the public relations budget for the NYPD is is four million dollars. I mean, these are fully staffed public relations fronts, and there's been some pushback against this since Black Lives Matter. But you know, for the most part, 
when the police shoot an unarmed black man or woman, the reason why you sort of, you don't get this as, as much anymore because of criticism, but you know, 2014, 15, 16, you would get the criminal report of the black men they shot immediately. That would be leaked to the press because there's access to that for police do. Um, even for minors, um, you immediately have, whereas the police officer who did the shooting would be anonymous and, and protected because that's, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, the, fam the, the, the family of Mike Brown and the family of, of uh, you know, who, who, whatever black man was shot that, 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 that month, whoever that may be, they're not heavily resourced. You know, they can call up some nonprofits here and there, but for the most part, they don't have those kinds of resources. And um, so you, you immediately get the, sh the narrative shaped. I mean, look at the initial New York Times report from July of 2014 of, of, um, of Eric Garner, uh, um, his, 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 his strangulation death in Staten Island. I mean, it's overweight man dies after confrontation with police. And the reason why the New York Times wrote that, I mean, really, it's, it's an object lesson and why you should never ever. Is that literally what the New York Times wrote as a headline? Uh, no, but that's that, that I'm paraphrasing, but you can go read it. I mean, oh, okay, okay. I, mean I, I can, I can pull it up if you'd like. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, just, but calling him an overweight man um, seems so excessive. Yeah, no, here I'll, 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 uh, I'll show you. I'll pull it up real quick if you don't mind. Uh, just yeah, me. no, I'll no worries. Seconds. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it, it is kind of amazing how the, the narrative and at least in, media like the New York Times, or the Washington Post. Um, it, do you think that it's, it's changed since uh, George Floyd and all the uh, protests no, here, last summer? Here, here, here we go. Here's the headline. This is from July 17th, 2014, New York Times. Staten Island man dies after police try to arrest him. A Staten Island man died on Thursday after police officers tried to arrest him on the street not far from Staten Island Ferry, the police said. The man, Eric Gardner, 43, went into cardiac arrest as he was being taken into police custody around 4.45 p.m. on Bay Street, across from Tompkinsville Park, the police said. He was pronounced dead a short time later at Richmond University, Richmond University Medical Center on Staten Island. It was not, not immediately clear why Mr. Gardner was being arrested or if he had been handcuffed at the time. The police said he had been arrested uh, numerous times, mostly, most recently in May on charges of illegal cigarette sales. Mr. Gardner weighed well over 300 pounds, the police said. Wow. So then the video comes out, yeah. you know, a couple of days later, and it shows that he strangled to death. But again, this is, this is, this is how it works, because what other, the New York Times says, okay, black men murdered by police, where do I get my information? They're not going to go around canvassing witnesses and looking for, you know, CCV tapes and and, and and trying to find holes in the police narrative, the police tell them something. They say, "Police say, police say, police say, police say, police say," and that's the story. And that's how most stories are written. Which is again, those in power have access to have access to public relations and have, have marketing people. They will necessarily curate their initial impressions of these things. But like you, like I said, and like you mentioned in the last question, that that has changed slightly. Some people are more skeptical now. Uh, local news, not so much. But I think some of the more you know, kind of enlightened sources don't, don't quite do that as much anymore. Local news? Well, yeah, I mean, local news is a fucking, is a, is a, none of those people give a shit. <laughs> local news is, is, is um, really just a real estate 
propaganda arm. I mean, that's mostly what the local news is. It, the local news doesn't even care about any of this kind of enlightened, you know, USC Annenberg School of Journalism critiques over the last few years. They, they still stick to police, say, police, say, police, say, formula. Yeah, because they're local, like local TV news, I should say. Although I'm not sure web is much better, but it is. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't watch much local TV news just because uh, I don't watch much TV at all. I'm sure, uh, you know, well, you, you must watch TV now because of, of the work you do. do. Does this ever get uh, a little hellacious to have to be looking at all these, um, all this news? Um, I mean, it's better than real work. It's not like I'm, you know, waiting tables or anything. It's not like it's real work. I mean, that's what I did before, and I never want to do that again. So, no. no, it's a fairly easy job. I mean, it's 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 finding stuff that sucks and and make and criticizing it. And given the nature, <laughs> and given and given the the sort of state Fair of the media, it's not like I'm never wanted a, of a subject matter. Right. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that I heard like a, a John Stewart say at one point. It's like, yeah, we would just go and like they would they would tear down Fox News every night. And like that feels rather easy. I think what you're doing is much more um, uh, much more nuanced and um, enlightening. Um, however, I'm curious, what do you think is the um, what do you think is the effect of because there's never a want of material, do you ever like look at, do you ever feel like giving into despair over uh, correcting these problems? I don't know. I, I, that's probably a question that anyone like vaguely on the left has to deal with, which is, is there any moral utility to any of this? Um, I think, yes, I think, in some ways, I certainly wouldn't credit myself, but I think in some ways, generally media criticism over the past few years has made media suck marginally less. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. It's always difficult to gauge how effective it is, but that's true of pretty much any media. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I, it's not like it's, I can't really do anything else. Um, I don't know how else I can contribute because it's not like I have, I'm not a lawyer. I can't get people out of jail. I can't, you know, I'm not a, not going to write the great American novel. That's going to liberate people's souls. I mean, I mean, dunking on shitty media coverage is, is the one thing I'm good at. So it's kind of like what I have to do because I, I, I think it is valuable in many ways. It's sort of a gateway to broader kind of criticisms of, of, broader systemic analysis in general, right? I mean, media criticism for a lot of people in the West, for me especially, is a sort of gateway into more radical politics because if you start to sort of pick apart the, the, the kind of bourgeois framework of media, it sort of lends itself to other questions about... Like my baby's crying in the background, sorry. Um, it, lends it, it lends itself to um, bro broader critiques of, of everything else. I mean, because the same forces that are that corrupt our priorities in media are the same forces that corrupt our priorities in academia, corrupt our priorities, you know, corrupt our priorities um, in government spending, corrupt our priorities elsewhere. So it's 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 kind of a it's a it's a it's a wedge. It's a way of sort of viewing power relations in a way that are stark because in some ways 
it it's it's impossible to deny the the how warped priorities are. Like I just wrote a piece today, for example, about the the full blown media meltdown over the withdrawal in Afghanistan, and then showed how all three network Sunday morning shows over the past month have not mentioned the the end of the the eviction moratorium uh, and uh, federal unemployment insurance, which affects three and a half million and nine point three million people respectively. And we're talking millions of people losing their primary lifeline, their primary financial lifeline overnight. And basically no one talked about it when there was reporting, but as far as like the debate forums, the Sunday morning shows, uh, editorial boards, late night, whatever you want to sort of, however the kind of zeitgeist is, is curated, basically no, nobody talked about it. And then you contrast that with the nonstop you know, sort of hysterical at an 11 meltdown over everything involving Afghanistan. Not that Afghanistan wasn't, you know, an important right. story. Of course it was. And the, and the moralizing and the way nominally straight reporters just went into full-blown editorializing, giving their opinions. I mean, you, you, you see, then you see who the, who the media class represents. And there's so many examples of that where you see like the things that actually affect working class, poor people, struggling people, um, have basically zero purchase in, in in media priorities. I mean, there are again, there are some exceptions. It's not like the New York Times didn't report on the pandemic aid ending, but it was, <clears throat> you know, sort of sober and below the fold. Page eight, a fourteen, kind of a, a ho hum. What are we going to do about it, liberal? Uh, you know what Adam Curtis calls um, um, odierism. Yes, you know, sit there and you, there's no there's no sense of political action. It's sort of viewed as like a hurricane or, um, you know, an earthquake. It's just something big that happens. Um, versus the sort of five alarm meltdown over over the withdrawal or any other sort of anything involving um, the, the 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 sanctity of the of the national security state, for example. I mean, just like a budget priorities, we have an upwards of a trillion dollar um, military. Uh, budget, including uh, the supplemental war packages, including the $740 billion Pentagon spending, including the um, you know CIA black budget. Uh, there's all this sort of stuff we spend money on every day. And then you say, I, I wrote an article once in 2017. And it was like, you had a not, you, when Bernie Sanders proposed his free college education, uh, the price tag he put was, was uh, $41 billion. Some put it at $70 billion, but it was $41 billion. And literally the same week, and there was a full-blown, you know, media... Uh, Washington Post, Vox.com, various pundits. How are we going to afford it? We can't afford that. How is Bernie Sanders going to pay for it? How much taxes is it going to be? And meanwhile, the, literally the same week that 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 summer, um, they increased the military budget um, by eighty-three billion dollars, which um, which which is which is in real terms, which is which was about I think seven or eight times inflation. It was the greatest military budget hike. This was twenty seventeen. The greatest military budget hike since nine eleven. Um, and one of the biggest ever, um, supposedly to fight Russia or China or whatever. And this $83 billion increase in the budget, um, which again, far outstripped inflation by a factor of six, seven X, was bigger than the entire Russian military budget, um, which I think at that point was something like 50 something billion dollars. And there was zero public debate about it. Nobody talked about it. it wasn't on Jake Tapper's State of the Union. It wasn't on the Sunday morning shows. It wasn't in New York Times editorial. No one, at, no one at Fox or Washington Post wrote about how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? It just sort of happened. It just happened overnight. No public debate at all. 
And you see these warped priorities, the way in which anything that helps the poor or minorities or involves tackling climate change, what we call the sort of living economy, the kind of the, 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 the economy that creates life versus that which takes it. That, that, that helps mothers pay for you know, diapers and, and formula and, and, and pre-K education. But anything that does that, it's how are you gonna pay for it? How are you gonna pay for it? How are you gonna pay for it? But the, but the second we need a fucking ice cutter in the Arctic to combat Putin or another fucking aircraft carrier for the seventh fleet, it's just rubber stamp. No public debate at all, zero public debate. But and people see that, people see that and they think, well, that's really strange. That is extremely convenient. Um, and again, that reflects who owns media and whose priorities are reflected in media, or U.S. corporate media, more broadly, who funds corporate media. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, because you've spoken about uh, the misinformation, like here, here's an example of something that I think is um, may, maybe an important thing to hi- highlight, at least as far as it comes to uh, media criticism. Um, you mentioned horse paste. Uh, people there was a story that recently came out about um, right. ivermectin apparently causing, you know, so many overdoses yeah. at hospitals. Yeah. That, that, that story, that's, that story reeked from day one. I was, I, I didn't tweet it, but I told, I told my wife at the time, I was like, this is so obviously fake. I mean, that was a very undersourced story, but it fed into kind of liberal prejudices and that's why it went viral. And that's why they published it because it fed a very, it fed, it fed a partisan narrative. Um, yes, was, but the, the reason I bring it up is because yeah. it, it speaks to uh, uh, a, a wider uh, debate about, you know, who, censorship on uh, tech platforms that I think um, can get blurred into this cancel culture debate. But yeah, no, I, I'm sensitive to that. I mean, I've been writing about that for years. Um, that handing handing over the reins of censorship to to Facebook and Twitter, and, and having them be the epistemology czars is not is not good. That um, doesn't mean I don't think like actual right wing disinformation is not a problem. But I think our solutions are about bestowing the power of censorship upon tech platforms. And I'm a little I'm I, I'm I'm dubious of that. I think there are instances where it's justified. I'm not a you know, I'm not a doctrinaire kind of free speech internet guy. I don't think there are exceptions to that. I mean, the, the solution would be to break them up and, and or have some kind of public control uh, versus because the problem is they have this huge monopolistic power, especially Facebook and Google. Um, I think the censorship of left-wing speech is obviously far more um, urgent. And I do think there are blurring lines. And I do think that sometimes t- censorship efforts will lead with right-wing disinformation to kind of lubricate the conversation so they can there go for just start deplatforming, you know, Palestinians and right and, and, and accounts in Venezuela and accounts in China, which is really what they which is really what they want to do. Right. Um, I mean that's that's what the Alex Jones uh, question is seems to be about for some people. It's like, well Yeah, and I'm but I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not I, it's a case I, maybe this is a bit um Cowardly, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much case by case. Like there are examples where, for example, like there, when Twitter shut down Trump, Donald Trump's account, everyone made it out to be this whole unfree speech thing. It's like, no, Trump's clearly inciting violence. He's clearly inciting. Um, and like, it's completely reasonable for tech platforms to not allow sitting presidents, the most powerful person in the world, 
to basically, you know, if you if you if you undermine the legitimacy of an election, you're effectively calling for violence. It's the only, it's the only logical solution. And I remember that day. I was like, uh, and you know, the, the day he was after the election when he was saying this and that, and he stole and I was like, yeah, they should take him off Twitter. He's clearly inciting violence. Like that's a pretty clear cut case of inciting violence. And I know that it's not always easy to know where that line is, and I'm, and I'm sensitive to that. But I, I have no problem with that. Um, what I have a problem with, and what I've written about before, is the the kind of spooky um, State Department NGO funded so called anti fake news apparatus that emerged post Trump. That is absolutely about doing what a lot of governments do, which is curate the flow of information and make sure people don't have wrong think put in front of their face. Um, I just don't think the primary victims of that are right wing media at all. Um, and we know this because like nine out of the top 10 stories every week that, that go viral on Facebook are fucking right wing media. Like this is not a, not a really an urgent problem for them. Um, there are exceptions, you know, obviously if you have things like some of the messaging around the pandemic has been a little dicey. Although I think some of that's maybe emerged from legitimate or kind of good faith attempts at not really knowing what the fuck they're doing. But um, I, I don't think that the vector, the threat vector with respect to free speech is primarily targeting, um, you know, the pandemic documentary or, or JD Vance. I mean, you know, there are, there are over 3 million people in prison who have zero freedom of speech rights who can't write and say what they want. They can't publish. They can't, they can't write loved ones. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm curious where, why those people never get mentioned in this, in the free speech debate. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of looking at how free speech works. Um, you know, JD Vance's $10 million from Peter Thiel and, and these guys, Tucker Carlson's on Fox news and they're sitting there complaining how they're being silenced. And it's like, well, by who? Right. Yeah. Um, there, there's a risk. There, there's a risk of monopolistic tech companies having too much censorship power. I don't think that. I think that the the right wing whining about it, for, for which Glenn, you know, sort of carries water for all the time. I don't think it's a very credible. Um, is is not really high on my list of victims. Yeah. No. I I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I don't want to 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 uh, you know run circles about it for too much you know too long, and, and I. I you you are right that um, the censorship of Palestinians, et cetera, definitely predates the um, censoring of Alex Jones. But I, I suppose maybe a, a, a different way of putting it is it, polls have shown that Democrats and, um, uh, you know, particularly liberal Democrats tend to be uh, much more supportive, even of government intervention in um, controlling the flow of information on the internet. And I, I just hate the fact that this is because well, right wing. I mean, to, to be clear, it's all, go, it's all government intervention. Right. The whole, like use, you know, Facebook being dragged in front of Congress and being browbeaten by, by, you know, every six months and being threatened by this and that, that that's government intervention. They can, you know, they, they launder it through these NGOs and, and, and partners who work to curate, but it's, it's all, go, it's just, it's an Americanized version of what, of what China does, what, you know, what Israel does, whatever, what a bunch of other countries do. It's not anything different. It's just we 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 have we have one added step of acting like, you know, the Atlantic Council comes in and or the you know, anti defamation league comes in. It's the same effect. They have to sort of play nice. Um, and again, I think some of that is understandable, but I do think that 
it, it can and, and has been a slippery slope. It has been used in ways that I don't think are good. I just don't, I don't have a categorical, categorical opposition to it in theory, assuming again, big assumption, assuming you're having, um, you have to have this monopolistic tech companies. Cause again, I think that's the core problem. I think that any monopolistic tech company is necessarily going to pick, pick and choose winners and losers. Uh, if not by direct censorship, by deplatforming or, or delisting, which is what Eric, you know, Eric Schmidt said many years ago. He said, well, we're not going to censor. We're just going to put it down the page. So you can't find it. I'm like, well, okay, that's, <laughs> that's just censoring. I mean, that's, we're sort of discussing, you know, the same, you know, the same thing. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. There are, there, it, I don't think people should be able to go on Twitter and say, you know, fuck you, die, hope you fucking burn in an oven. I don't think that's something I think is worth protecting. I'm sorry, I don't. Um, but I think the existence of edge cases does not mean that we should give up on the idea like that, that, that everyone and everyone, you know, everyone and their mother deserves to say whatever kind of anything they want. Um, that's the difficult questions all societies have to deal with. Cool. I, I have a question. What about for... Um... And this kind of relates to um, the, the, there's a lot of media criticism you could give of the buildup to the Iraq war. But what about those uh, journalists or pundits, whomever, who advocated, you know, using speech to invade Iraq, which is surely huge. You know, it, it's much worse than saying, I hope you No, know. I've, I've, I've made this exact argument that you can go on the Washington Post and say, we should bomb Iran and that's, that's acceptable speech. But if you go up and say, I'm going to kill an Iranian, that's hate speech. Right. You know, I, I, there's absolutely a double standard. I'm, I've written about that. I wrote about for fair. Do you, I, I'm, how do you think we should resolve that double standard then? I don't think people should be able to incite violence against countries either. Hmm. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward to me. You shouldn't be able to threaten countries on large platforms. Um, I don't think you should be able to, I mean, that that's the definition of incitement, you know, whether it's a Washington Post column or not. I mean, that's, and people do this shit casually. I mean, John Bolton does it. John McCain did it. Um, literally just seeing, you know, let's, let's you know, the, the Foundation for Defense and Democracies does it all the time. But no, if you're going to have a consistent platform, I mean, and that's what's interesting, but the, 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 the Twitter terms of service have a very clear carve out for state institutions. They're, 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 they are, they are immune from, and not included in sanctions against those threatening violence quite explicitly in the, in the terms of service. Yeah. And I don't think they should be. Well, well, but not even state, but even, you know, a casual person on the street, like, well, what if I'm just a citizen and I say, you know what, I think we should invade Iraq. I mean, it, it, well, if you're, if sorry, let me phrase that. If you're advocating a state do it, that's, then that's, that's, that's fine. Then that would be not permitted speech. That would be from the, I'm not speaking normatively. I'm speaking descriptively. Okay. I believe that the TOS that and say that that's that's okay, yeah, especially yeah. if it's against the you know. But I, I guess enemy country. What I'm getting at is, I feel like I any time that there's some kind of, um, and I didn't mean this to become a discussion about speech, which is uh, gross and kind of boring at this point. But sure. um, it, it, you know, it it seems like anytime you try to develop a set of rules to govern what can and cannot be said, all kinds of inconsistencies and, um, you know, uneven distributions of justice start to arise. And it also feels like the powers that be who 
uh, are in charge of those tools of censorship um, tend to abuse them, um, or they can redefine them at any point uh, to mean what you know not what you originally intended. So it just feels like asking any of these tech companies or the government to 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 censor even saying going on on TV and saying we should invade Iraq. Like that's something that um, that's an example specifically. A guy like Chomsky. Uh, said that he would be in favor of allowing people to say that. Do you feel like this is this question of free speech has maybe shifted generationally over the course? Of- I think I think I have no problem with it in theory. I think the problem is when people advance that they never talk about the real barriers to free speech, which right. absolutely dead before any kind of active, like proactive censorship on the part of the government or any kind of um, parallel NGO type situation, which is what we have. Before any of that, the fundamental barrier of speech is power. It's how much money do you have? It's whether or not you're incarcerated. It's whether or not you're black. It's whether or not you're too fat. It's whether or not you're too, uh, you know, you don't, you didn't go to the right school. Um, the barriers to speech are far more about fundamental, are about, are about uh, I don't want to get to, I'm not trying to be dormant. I'm not trying to evade the question. I think that, you're, that, 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 these, that these, it's like the Harper's letter. It's so not holistic. And I would take these people far more seriously if they had a pathway to talk about publicly funded independent media, if they had a pathway of talking about, uh, um, you know, class and racial quotas in media, if you want to talk about uh, making it illegal for, for billionaires and corporations to even fund media or to fund things like Fox News or to fund things like Veritas Project, which was founded by Peter Thiel with $10,000, that constantly incite violence against the poor. I mean, Tucker Carlson goes, is paid by Rupert Murdoch and, 20, and Fox corporate, you know, Fox News and, 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 20, and 21, uh, 20th Century Fox to go on TV every night and incite violence against the homeless. And the homeless have zero platform to push back. That is infringing upon the free speech rights and the livelihoods and the safety of those homeless people. Um, when, you, when, you, when you speak about them as if they're vermin, as if they're shit, as if they're cockroaches, that is inciting, that is inciting violence. You know, we can talk about whether or not you want to censor that or not, but that's what you do when you speak about trans people as being subhuman. That, those, are, those, are, those are forms of dehumanization. And the people that are subject to, those, to, those, to that dehumanizing speech they don't have any platform that's remotely comparable for the most part. Yeah, okay, maybe there's some super woke person who's a fucking associate editor at Teen Vogue, which apparently a lot of people think is the the the, the sort of nexus of power in this country. Um, but it's not. I mean, go on any you can turn on any c- cable news show at any given day, and it's just anti-homeless rhetoric, anti-poor rhetoric. Um, let's bomb this country. Let's invade this country. I mean. So what is free speech? What does that even mean? I, don't, I, I guess I don't really know what it's even supposed to mean because it, absent being a subset of a broader holistic understanding of how power works, it's, it, it seems to me like it's, it's just libertarian schlock. It's, it's trying to, you're, you're, you're a referee who's showed up to a game between a peewee team, you know, a peewee football team of seven-year-olds and, 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 and the Kansas City Chiefs and you're saying, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this game even. Well, okay. <laughs> Good for you. How sanctimonious of you. You're just calling balls, you know, you're not the next sports metaphors. You're just sort of calling it down the middle, but like, what about the power dynamics? And if you don't address that, then you're not really addressing the issue at hand. It's, it's, it's more of a, it's a non sequitur more than anything. Hmm. Does that make sense? Um, like, why, why, why do the, why does the homeless coalition of Chicago not have an hour every night on primetime television? Right. No, no, no. I, I hear why, why is that? Why is that? Why don't they have it? Oh. Give me a reason. 
because they don't have someone who wants to write them a fucking check to do that. Right. <laughs> right. So that's all that matters. That, that, that is the biggest, that is the biggest uh, uh, barrier to free speech in, 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 the, in any kind of meaningful sense, which is, do you have access to power? Do you have access to money? And are you, are you conventionally seen as being worthy of media attention? Yes, it, it is kind of, um, in order for speech to be meaningful, you do have to have some kind of access to uh, the information network. And, and get your speech spread in some ways. But um, that, that's kind of, in order for your speech to be censored at all, it kind of presupposes that it's being spread on some level. Certainly not but, like- uh, but, uh, the, the largest, the, but the largest amount of censorship happens before the speech is even given. Mm. So again, there, there are 3 million people in prison who, can't, who have no free speech. Right. They, ha- they, can't, they cannot write what they want. They can't even have loved ones send them for letters for the most part. They now have to take the fucking- birthday car they used to get sent uh, a fucking prison guard takes it does a xerox copy of it and hands them the xerox copy so wh- where's your free speech there I, I don't get it i i don't i don't i don't know what this concept fucking means it's just a bourgeois liberal nonsensical concept i'm sorry i i i, I hear what you're saying and i agree with you that that is that is a bigger uh, um, people in prison who can't write their loved ones can't, you know, that, that is a, a, a much bigger violation of freedom of speech or in cases where uh, there have been laws in certain states where if you choose to boycott Israel, you know, that results in you being fired or, um, you know, these are huge violations of speech. It just seems to me like it, there is this, um, it, it, it is a shame that um, it's, it feels like the left has basically just the, the words free speech have become a signal for your right wing. And it seems like what you're saying is actually that you really do value free speech, but you're, um, you, you're, it's a question of priorities that are different. I mean, free speech as a, as a mantra has always been about the left using a kind of conservative framework to achieve power, whether it was the industrial workers of the world doing the, doing the free speech um, protests in 1909, 1910, 1911, because cities were passing laws that said um, were outlawing protests, outlawing petitioning outside of outside of coal mines and outside of copper mines. You were not allowed to, uh, which effectively makes syndicalism and unionism impossible, right? So they had free speech uh, protests using a kind of romantic libertarian ideal to push what was effectively a left wing agenda of syndicalism, right? Uh, whether or not they had any ideological commitments to free speech or such, I don't know. You saw the same thing in the 60s when, when anti-communist purges were, you know, were killing left-wing movements on college campuses. It was a free speech movement. Um, those mantras are valuable in certain contexts and they make sense in certain contexts and I understand why people embrace them. But the idea that, is that two words can have some kind of consistent or, over, or, or overarching political uh, value, I, I guess I don't really... I don't know what that means because it, it's extremely context dependent. Um, and, but, but free speech is some kind of lofty liberal norm, uh, again, absent any kind of considerations about power, about financing. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think that's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's kind of an eighth grade social studies concept. It's, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't have any interest in, in me. And I think that's kind of where I fall in a lot of this stuff where it's like, well, it depends on the context, it depends on, on this whole like I'm a high-minded person who has consistent principles no matter what happens it's like yeah that sounds good but like what is the 
Right. What is the moral and political context in which we're trying? What are we trying to advance here? Are we trying to, you know, um, it's like democracy or human rights. It's, a, it's, it's this lofty term that is like fine in theory, but it, it really depends on who's saying it, where and why, because that informs what the what the, what it actually means. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and if I if this were Twitter, I, I would I would say that, oh, uh, Adam Johnson is anti-democracy. Case closed. Um <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, is there is there a current in liberalism that has become overly censorious? Probably. Um, I think it's a, a, but I think it's a somewhat, this is going to be me doing a total apologia. I think it is a logical survival pushback against what has effectively been for since, you know, Dinesh D'Souza in you know, the 1990s uh, has been the right wing using concepts of free speech as a stalking horse to promote um, just kind of pat racist and sexist bullshit. Um, so the context doesn't matter because uh, that's you know part of being a pattern seeking mammal. You say, well, this is now the 500th person who's used free speech as an excuse to talk about how we should throw uh, immigrants into the fucking blender. So I'm gonna kind of use my pattern seeking mammal, mammal skills mm -hmm. to say, well, maybe this isn't the most good faith attempt at creating a, a sort of you know, Athenian democracy. I mean, so I, I think that's why there's been a kind of pushback. I think it's kind of a Lucy in the football. I think after the 800th time, people said, well, fuck it, who cares about free speech? Because it's not really what people want anyway. It's a stopping horse. Mm. Well, uh, as a, a pattern seeking mammal, I am looking at my clock and it appears that over an hour has passed since we started talking at him. Um, so yes. I don't want to take a baby. I gotta go, I gotta go put the baby to bed, unfortunately. Oh, well, fortunately, it's a fun thing to do, but I do have to go as, as you were saying you were already segueing there and then i did the yes. alpha thing where i had to, like i had to go <laughs> um but no i think that's a perfect time to wrap it up i hope i hope that was informative. yeah no and listen i hope i i hope um that i didn't uh that this whole free speech thing didn't swallow the entirety of the discussion <laughs> no it's all good it's you know these are interesting questions i'm happy to, i don't really talk about it much i'm happy to talk about it so i thought it was productive um I do have to go though. Maybe something a meltdown. So yes. um, thank nope. you so much for having me on. It was great, and uh, I look forward to hearing it. All right, great, Adam. All right, take care. You got it. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you to Adam Johnson, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.